G'day everyone. Great to see you all. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for what a privilege it has been to be studying the Sermon on the Mount uh, over these past few weeks. We thank you for the way it always encourages us to realise just how wonderful it is what Jesus has done for us. Uh, As it points out our sin, but reminds us that we only find salvation in Jesus. We pray that we'll hear that encouragement again tonight. But we also pray that we'll hear the challenge of Jesus' words. That now as forgiven sinners, as members of your kingdom, we will want to live to please Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember when I was uh, back in school, probably about, I was about year two. So how old would you be in year two? I can't remember, maybe seven or something like that. And we had to write our life stories, which is quite funny when you think about it, because you're only six or seven. Anyway, I did what all smart kids do in that situation. Mine was a bit boring, so I just made up stuff and uh, made it sound a bit more exciting than it was. Uh, And then I thought I was being different to the other kids until they all got read out. And I realized, all these kids are just making this up, you know. So uh, there was one kid in particular who said, the sort of things you included in your life story was, my first word was mum, or my first word was dad. And this kid said, well, my first word was motorbike. And given this was the kid whose father also played cricket for Australia, according to his life story, and had been to America every holiday and all this. You didn't have the internet then to check stuff. So you just, you know, had to call it out. But anyway... uh, Whatever your first word was, whether it was motorbike or mum or dad, one of the first words or first phrases we learned from a very young age, and certainly my kids learned it very, very early, is that's not fair. From the very beginning, before you can almost put any other sentence together, we have this innate sense of justice or injustice where we feel if I'm not getting what I deserve, I should speak up about it. But do you notice how that sense of justice... Uh, is nearly always about ourselves. It's about when it's not fair for us. We don't quite as naturally spot the fact that it's unfair for the other person. So very rarely have my children, I don't think my children are particularly different to others, uh, very rarely have they pointed out to me, that's not fair because I've got more than them. It's always, that's not fair because I've got less. Uh, We don't feel it as naturally and as strongly for other people. And I think that's what makes Jesus, what Jesus says in our passage tonight probably the hardest thing he says even harder than if you remember the last three or four weeks than all the things he said about hate in our hearts and murder about lust in our hearts and adultery the things he said about divorce and and faithfulness to our word and also all those things because deep down we all know even while we don't do it or even while we do do it we know that hate and anger are wrong so when Jesus points out you know, how bad hate is and how bad anger is, even though we're confronted by it, we know that he's right. And and when he talks about adultery and lust, even if we struggle with it, we know, as he says it, that he's right, that lust is a horrible thing that objectifies other people and so forth. And even as he talks about faithfulness and truthfulness, even though we struggle to be faithful and truthful so often, we know that he's right. Whereas here, Jesus pushes beyond the bounds of what we know is right, but don't do, if I can put it that way. Here he calls on us to show a type of love to other people that our world, frankly, thinks is stupid. Uh, He he calls on us to to show a type of love that our world just cannot understand. It it goes beyond normal. Uh, It's just so countercultural. 
Sometimes people say to me that all religions are the same. People say that to you. Do you notice how it's always people who want to justify the fact that they don't believe? So they say, oh, all religions are the same. No one who actually adheres to any one religion ever says all religions are the same. It's only people who don't believe anything or anything in God who want to say all religions are the same. And they love saying they all say, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Which they don't all say, actually. Jesus said that. But when they say that, this is the passage I take them to. This is the passage to show them how different Jesus is to every other person who has ever lived and how different Jesus' ethical teaching is, how radical it is compared to anything else that has ever been taught. So let's get into it. Come with me. Chapter 5, verse 38. Jesus starts in the same way we've gotten used to in each of these passages. He quotes the Pharisees as they quote the Old Testament. So that's what he's doing as he starts. So verse 38, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was the basic rule of the Old Testament justice system. We read it where one part where it's quoted in Deuteronomy 19. We could have read Exodus 21. We could have read Leviticus 24. That was the building block, the basic foundation of the Old Testament justice system. When someone wrongs someone and it is proven, they should be made to pay back equal to the damage they did to the other person. In fact, that is still the basis of our legal system today. Our legal system at its heart says, if you've knocked that person's tooth out, we don't then go and knock your tooth out, but we say you should pay for the dental work. You should pay to compensate them for the damage you've caused to them. But in the Old Testament law, that is what it was about. It was about justice. That's why they said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It was saying there needs to be justice for our society to work. There needs to be fairness to govern society. So this was a rule for the courts to apply. So did you notice, as we read Deuteronomy before, it was you needed a couple of witnesses to prove that the damage has happened before the courts then enforced the, the return of damages. And more than that, what this law did was it limited people from getting into a cycle of revenge. It was to stop what I call the backseat fights in the car. I know if, if you grew up with more than two children in your family, you all had to sit across the back seat. And what happens is one pokes the other. And that's how it starts. And now the retribution is not then just a poke back, it's a punch back. And then this person says, I saw you punch them. So they slap them on the back of the head. You see, and it just cycles out of control. And at its worst, you see it in societies, and there are many societies in our world like this, where these blood feuds happen where it goes for generations, where this family hates this family, like the Montagues and the Capulets in Romeo and Juliet. I was going to say for those who read the play at school, but you grew up before these syllabus changes they've announced. So for those who saw the movie. um, uh, But in Romeo and Juliet, that's the whole basis of the story, isn't it? One family hates the other story, uh, the other family. But if you ask this family, why do you hate them? They can't remember. It's that someone hurt someone who hurt someone, who took revenge on someone, who took revenge on someone. And that is the way society often works, this sort of cycle of revenge. Because this idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in Old Testament justice, it very quickly took on a life of its own. And it became about justifying my right to take revenge. So the question for the Pharisee became, well, what level of damages can I get from this person for the damage they've caused me? You even feel that in the way we tend to say it. 
No one says it in an indifferent way. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It just sounds bloodthirsty. It sounds like you're demanding your rights, even as you say it. And more than that, what they had done was they had taken it out of the courts and out of the justice system and just saw this as their right for how they interacted with one another. So they didn't need witnesses to prove they were damaged. If you hurt me, I had the right to hurt you back. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. God's word said so. The only question became, how much can I hurt you back before I get in trouble? And if you want to look and see this in action, just look at most cultures in the world where Christianity has not shaped their culture. In most parts of the world where Christianity has not shaped their culture, this idea of blood feuds is just a part of the culture. As much as our society wants to ignore it and pretend history hasn't happened, be very thankful that you live in Australia and have a Christian heritage to our legal system. It's the basis on which our legal system works. And so into that sort of world, Jesus says, verse 39, look with me. He says, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard that before, so you're not shocked. But just think for a moment what Jesus is actually saying there. He is saying, someone wrongs you, don't resist. Be a doormat. That's what he's saying. And so people read that and they say, Jesus, that cannot be right. But as if to sort of answer our objections before we even raise them, he gives us four examples to make his point totally clear. Look again at verse 39. He says, On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. When someone slaps you, what does every bone in your body want to do? Be honest. It's not turn the other cheek. When someone slaps you, you want to slap them back, unless they're bigger than you, in which case you want your bigger friend to come and slap them back on your behalf. Isn't that? That's the, that's the honest answer. But Jesus says, no, 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 give them the other cheek to slap. Next, verse 40. He says, as for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, every bone in your body wants to get the best lawyer you can find to defend yourself so they don't get to take your shirt. But Jesus says, no, don't just give him your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Give him the lot. Verse 41, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, Roman soldiers had the right to stop a Jewish person on the side of the road and force them to carry all their armour and all their gear for a mile. And you can imagine the Jews resented it horribly. You'd resent it horribly, wouldn't you? If that was the, the rule, that someone could just come up to you and force you to carry all their things they oppressed you with for a mile. Every part of you would be grumbling at the unfairness of it. But Jesus says, no, no, don't just walk the mile grumbling. Go with him too. Offer to carry his gear an extra mile for free. And then finally, look at verse 42. He says, give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Don't grumble, don't complain, don't even worry about whether they're going to pay you back. Just give him what he needs. Just hand it over. At this point, in every Bible study I have ever been a part of in 23 years of being a Christian, before we've even thought about what Jesus says, people say, but that just doesn't work. And people say, but what about 
this situation and but what about that situation and and it just can't work and 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 we start talking about all the times you don't do what Jesus says that's every Bible study I've ever been in on this passage because immediately we see all the problems in what Jesus says don't we if we don't resist evil then don't join the police force and certainly don't join the army Sam looked up then he was like he was flagging a bit but he he looked up at me don't join the army because your job if you're in the police or if you're army is to resist evil people stop them doing it and catch them when they do so how, how does this work should Christians be total pacifists like Gandhi and just say we just let evil go and if I see a person hurting another person am I meant to just let it go what am I meant to do then uh, and if a person comes and asks me, asks me for money, you know, like when I get off the train at Central Station and, and, and the man comes and asks me for money, and I know he's going to go and spend it on alcohol or drugs, how could I give him the money when I know that's what he's going to do with it? See, if we applied this like totally, we say there would be anarchy and abuse would run rampant. And, and justice needs to happen. We need to remember, though, Jesus is speaking starkly to make a point. This is not everything he said on these topics. And the New Testament deals with all of those issues in other places. So the New Testament says God puts governments in place, even bad ones that you didn't vote for. God puts governments in place to keep justice, to enact justice in our land. The Bible says that it is right to fight evil and injustice on behalf of the poor and the powerless. Loving people will sometimes mean we don't give the beggar the money to go and inject it straight into his arm. But loving people means we don't just walk on by as well. See, but if we get caught up in all those questions, trying to work out all the reasons why we don't do what Jesus says, well, we are no worse than the Pharisees, are we? We're no better than them, sorry, than the Pharisees. And we actually miss the point that Jesus is really making. Jesus is not talking to you about what you do when other people are wronged. Jesus is talking about what you do when you are wronged. Personally, are you the legalist who demands your rights? Are you the person who, when you're wronged, dreams up the ways you're going to get your revenge? Or will you follow Jesus who gave up his rights and showed grace even to those who hurt him? See, are you the legalist who looks for all the reasons why you shouldn't have to be generous to that person in need? Or will you follow Jesus and be generous even if there's a chance you're being taken for a ride? See, Jesus' point here is Pharisees demand all their rights. Pharisees demand their right to retaliate. Pharisees demand their right to justice. Pharisees demand their right to their possessions. It's mine, I worked hard for it. But followers of Jesus are willing to give up their rights. Their right to retaliate, their right to our possessions, our right to our time, our right to our money. We don't demand even our legal rights. And we do that because we follow the one who gave up all of his rights. Even his right to life. Jesus was willing to suffer and not retaliate. Even to the point of death to win forgiveness even for those who killed him. This, all this is calling on us to do, I say all, all this is calling on us to do is to follow our Lord's example. 
See, if you say this is impractical, then Jesus was impractical. See, all it's calling us to do is to follow the example of Jesus who gave up everything for other people. And that leads us into the next area Jesus wanted to talk about. It's very closely related and it's the issue of hatred and love. Now again, come with me to verse 43. He starts by quoting the Pharisees, quoting the Old Testament. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. Now the first part is quoting the Old Testament. That's Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. But it seems like they have sort of applied their logic to come up with the second part. You don't find that quote in the Bible, hate your enemy. Uh, But perhaps what they'd done is taken those times in the Old Testament where God had called on Israel to be the sword of his judgment on other nations because of their disobedience towards God. Perhaps they'd misapplied that and and taken that to mean, well, I have to hate the people who are not my neighbour. But what they'd definitely done is they had defined the word neighbour really, really narrowly. So it's said, all right, God says, love my neighbour. Well, my neighbour is my fellow Jew who's just like me. And that's the people I've got to love. And everyone else I'm free to hate. Now, before you're too quick to judge them, uh, isn't it funny how we always say, how could you be a Pharisee? Aren't they terrible? Before we're too quick to judge them, love your neighbour and hate your enemy is pretty much the way every person in our world thinks and works. It's the way the average Australian from Cronulla works and it's the way the average Muslim in Iraq works and it's the way the average American works. It's the way people in our world work. The Pharisees were not worse than your average Australian. They were just like your average Australian. You love those who are close to you. You love those who are like you. You might not hate those who aren't like you but you're basically indifferent to them. And if someone wrongs you, whether they were your neighbour or someone who wasn't your neighbour before, now they are your enemy and you hate them. That way of looking at the world is not describing the worst of sinners, it's just the way everyday people work. But Jesus says, the way of the kingdom of heaven is not the way our world thinks. We don't limit our love to this one group of people who are like us and who are close to us. We don't try to define who our neighbour is and only love them. We treat everybody as our neighbour. And then Jesus says probably the most radical thing he ever said. Look at verse 44. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus is saying, I was only getting started with the turn the other cheek bit. Don't just... Let them have the other cheek to slap. Don't just let them do evil to you. Actually then proactively love the person who does evil to you. I think given the context and what Jesus said back in the Beatitudes, look back at verses 10 to 12, we looked at a few weeks ago, it's particularly talking about those who persecute us for being Christians. That's what he's particularly talking about, those who do evil to us. But I don't think we want to limit it. His point is, you do not repay evil with evil. We repay evil with love. We don't just turn the other cheek. We actively love them. We actively seek their good. And as Jesus stresses there, the most loving thing we can do for a person is pray for them. Pray for their good. 
But most of all, pray for their salvation. Pray that they might come to know Jesus and find forgiveness for their evil, like we have. The funny thing with that is, it sort of acts like a self-fulfilling prophecy, in my experience anyway. When you force yourself to pray for someone, you suddenly can't harbour thoughts of revenge anymore. It forces you to try and love them. And then as you pray for them, you actually get better at loving them and it sort of works in a circle. But the question is, why do we do that? Why do we love our enemies? I mean, it's, it's ludicrous when you think about the logic of it. And how can we do it? We do it because that's what our Lord did. We do it because that's what Jesus did. When Jesus hung on the cross, he looked down on the people who had hammered the nails into his wrists and his feet. And what did he say? What did he say to them? He said, Father, forgive them. The people who had hammered the nails in, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. I would have been swearing at them. I would have been cursing them. And if I was the son of God and had armies of angels at my disposal, I think I would have been tempted to call down an army of angels on them. But Jesus didn't. He prayed, Father, forgive them. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And here's the thing. We can claim to be children of God all we like. We can sing, blessed be, your Lord, blessed be the Lord, louder than everyone else in church. We can claim to be followers of Jesus. But he says, it is when you do this, it's when you are willing to love your enemies that you really prove to people that you are a child of God. Whatever you say you believe, it's the way we treat the people who wrong us that shows whether we really believe it. That's what he's saying there in verse 45. Look with me. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. You could misread that as saying that it is by loving our enemies that we become sons of our Father in heaven. That would be to contradict everything else Jesus says. The New Testament is very clear. You become a child of God by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus. That's how you become a child of God. So Jesus' point here is if you are a child of God, if you are someone who truly trusts in Jesus, then you will start to look like your heavenly Father. You will start to take on the family resemblance and so you will start to love your enemies like your brother Jesus and like your father in heaven does. Because God shows love even to those who reject him. Look at what it says there. It says, For he, our heavenly father, he causes his son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Do you ever think about this? How gracious is our God? How wonderful and gracious is our God. He does not block out his blessings from the people who spend their lives trying to convince other people he doesn't exist. Have you ever thought about that? People who go around the world actively saying, I do not follow this God and I, I want to encourage other people not to follow God. God brings the sun up every morning so they can experience the joys and the wonders of this creation. See, that's what the theologians call God's common grace. The grace he shows to all people, sinner and righteous alike. You see, even the person who refuses to believe God exists, God shows his love to and his grace to. And so Jesus brings this home to us in a really hard-hitting way. Come with me now to verse 46. He says, For if you love those who love you, 
What reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. We don't get just how bad tax collectors were in the time of Jesus. They were, by definition, crooks. That's what they were, who lived off the misery of their own countrymen. Uh, the, The modern equivalent might be the drug dealer of today. So wherever you see tax collectors in your Bible, insert drug dealer. And, and that tells you how they viewed them. And that is Jesus' point. Even the drug dealer loves his own family. Even the drug dealer, in a strange sort of way, loves the members of his gang, the people who do right by him. So Jesus says, how on earth can that be good enough for you? How on earth can that be a, the standard for a child of God to be equal with a drug dealer? The true test is... Do you love the unlovely? Do you love the people where there is nothing in return for you? And in particular, do you love those who hate you? That shows that you've really understood the gospel. And it's the same point there in verse 47. Look at verse 47. He says, and if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. It's so easy to ignore or exclude people who have wronged us, isn't it? Rather than going and seeking them out and trying to restore the relationship, it's much easier to just ignore them, just have nothing to do with them. And it's so easy to greet and include only the people we like. But Jesus says, even people who don't know God greet the people they like. So how on earth can that be the standard for a child of God? What possible merit is there in that? Again, the true test is how do you treat the unlovely? How do you treat... The person who gives you nothing in return and especially how do you treat the people who hate you. If I can just bring this home into the everyday for a moment. Our world, even at its best, our world works on what you might call a debtor's economy. Is anyone studying economics at university? I've stolen these words from economics but they don't actually mean anything. No, but a debtor's economy. Do you know what a debtor's economy is? It's where you return favours. That's the way our world works. It works on, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. You see, so I am nice to the people who are nice to me. I am generous to those who are generous to me. That's the way our world works. So in our sinfulness, our natural inclination is to see life in terms of debts and in terms of favours and that sort of thing. So why would I help them out? They never help anyone else out. Why would I give them a lift? They never offer anyone else a lift. Why would I cook them a meal? They never cook anyone else a meal. What have they ever done for me? And we are tempted to be like this all the time, even when we show grace. I've caught myself in this sometimes, sort of saying to Victoria, we've had them over three times and they've never invited us over. It's ingrained in us that life is about repaying debts and repaying favours. But even non-Christians do that. For us, for members of the kingdom of heaven, we should live in what I call a grace economy. See, I will help you out, no strings attached. You owe me nothing. I'm just doing it because you need a hand. That's grace. Not even the hidden string of complaining to Victoria that you didn't say thanks. You don't even need to say thank you. I'll just help you out. I'll cook you a meal, no strings attached. It's just because you need it. 
And where that becomes truly radical is where we show that sort of love and grace, not just to the person who doesn't do it back, but to the person who actually throws it back in our face. That's when grace and love are truly radical. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's funny, but at the moment, because of the rise of Islamic terrorism and extremism in our world, uh, the thing people are scared of in our world more than anything else is radicalisation. I don't think anyone even knew that word 10 years ago, but now everyone's scared of radicalisation, in particular youth. So if you're a youth here, our world is scared that you'll get radical. We used to think that was something that skateboarders talked about, but anyway. And so in schools, SRE or scripture is under pressure because they're worried that kids will get radicalised. And at Sam's school, his, the, his Christian lunchtime group all got called into the headmaster's office to be talked to about not taking it too seriously. Now, you know why that's happened. They, if they're going to call the Islamic group in, they've got to call the Christian group in as well. No one really thinks the Christian group is going to do anything much. But it's all to stop our youth being radicalised, all because in our politically correct modern world, people can't handle the idea that religions are different. Now, I don't want to downplay the issues in our world, but a few weeks ago, a parent asked me what we do at our youth group, and they got me in one of my moods. And I said to them, we radicalise our youth. And they were a bit shocked. And I said, yeah, we radicalise them. Just like I try and radicalise every person that comes to church every Sunday. Because that's what Jesus does. Because here is the result of being radicalised by Jesus. If you get radicalised by Jesus, when someone hurts you, you will turn the other cheek. When you get radicalised by Jesus, you will walk the extra mile. You will love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is what it looks like to be a radical follower of Jesus. And as we've seen all through the Sermon on the Mount, or at least I hope you've seen it all through the Sermon on the Mount, it is that sort of radicalism, that sort of distinctive living, that makes us salt and light in this world and means we actually make a difference. You see... Christians who do not listen to what Jesus says here make no difference in the world and are, what does Jesus say back there a few verses ago? Verse 13, are no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. The Christians who make a difference are the people who listen to this teaching of Jesus and say, I'm going to try and do it. I'm going to follow the radical saviour and be radical myself. Now as we read this, I don't know about you, but it created in me those two reactions that have happened every passage in the Sermon on the Mount. We read this and we say on the one hand, yes, that is what I want to be like. That is the love I want to show. But then on the other hand, we look at ourselves having read it and we see just how far short we fall of God's righteousness and God's love. Isn't that right? I don't know about you, but sometimes it's hard enough loving my family, little alone my neighbour and little alone my enemies. And all too often we fail to show any love at all, don't we? And Jesus really brings that home for us with verse 48. Look with me. He says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In a way, that sums up the whole Sermon on the Mount until now. As we've read about this righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, as we've read tonight, about this call to love our enemies, we see God's righteousness, God's love is perfect. 
And our first reaction to reading what Jesus says there in verse 48 is, I am so far short of perfect. You see, the first thing this does is drive us to Jesus. It should drive us to say, I'm not perfect, but I thank you, God, that you sent your son who is perfect and that he was willing to die for me so that I might be forgiven. He was willing to offer me forgiveness for my hating heart and for my lustful mind and for my untruthful lips and for my lack of love. See, this standard is meant to make us recognise our need for Jesus and to give thanks for him. But now, I want to say to you, now as people who know Jesus, the second thing it should do in us is make us dissatisfied with the way we treat other people. It should make us say, now I want to be different to our world. I don't want to just love those who love me. I want to walk in Jesus' footsteps. I want to even try and love my enemies. We should want to show a perfect love like our Father has loved us. And if we're going to do that, we need to ask God's help to work in us by his spirit, through his word, to keep transforming us so that we're not like the tax collectors and the Pharisees. But instead, we show this perfect love and this perfect righteousness that Jesus wants in his people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this hard teaching. And we admit that all too often, we only love those who love us first. And Father, we are sorry for that. And so we thank you that through Jesus, we can know your forgiveness and the gift of your righteousness. But now as members of your kingdom and as your children, through Jesus, we pray that we might seek to show this better love, this perfect love. Help us to be people who truly seek to turn the other cheek, to walk the second mile, and in particular to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And we pray that you might continue that work in us, transforming us, helping us to show that love in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.